A few years ago, uh, I had the privilege of uh, working as a health policy advisor to Tony Blair in 10 Downing Street. Uh, on the second day of my appointment, I got into a row with the Secretary of State for Health, John Reid. I didn't think this was a very good career move, but uh, nonetheless, um, I got into this row and it was about uh, banning smoking in public places, which was an idea that had just come on the agenda and that we were playing around with. I was a strong supporter of this. Uh, I thought it was an excellent idea, but I'm very much aware of the damage uh, that smoking does to, to health um, and to the wider society. Um, John Reid, on the other hand, um, was basically uh, was alarmed at the idea of banning smoking in public places. And he said to me, look, you're an advocate of choice. You're an advocate of freedom um, of choice. Um, uh, how can you tolerate this idea of actually restricting people's choices in this way? Why couldn't we, for instance, have a room in every restaurant and every pub in which people uh, could, uh, could smoke. They could take their food in there, no bar staff would have to go in there, no restaurant staff would have to go in, it would only be smokers, uh, and they could smoke themselves to their heart's content. And actually that's a difficult question to answer. Um, uh, and I think you're forced, and indeed this is a position I was forced into, to say, well, actually I think it would be for their own good if people were stopped smoking. Uh, in other words, even if nobody else is affected, even if nobody else is hurt by it, uh, it would be a good thing for the state to intervene to try to stop people smoking. And that raised a number of questions for me, and it's the questions I've been working on um, pretty much ever since. Um, I've been thinking about, uh, should the state save people from themselves? Or put another way, if should the state actually... Uh, try and change individuals' behaviour when that individual's behaviour has no other consequence other than for the individual themselves. And that's the kind of thing I've been looking at. And I suppose I've been looking at two rather separate questions within that. Firstly, is there a kind of philosophical basis for state intervention? Is there, what is the justification for state intervention? And if we agree that there is a justification, and I do actually go on to argue there is a justification, then how should it do it? What's the best way for the state to intervene? By, by banning things, by compelling people to do things, or by this newly fashionable idea called nudge or libertarian paternalism? Now, on the first question, on the justification question, uh, what the new science of behavioural economics and behavioural psychology has told us is that people very often make misjudgments. And in, they make misjudgments in making crucial decisions about their lives, about their health, about their old age, about their well-being. This is particularly true when, when you're looking at events that take a long, uh, place a long time in the future. So the 18-year-old picking up a cigarette does not, uh, does not think about what it would be like to be 65 with lung cancer. Uh, the 20-year-old trying to decide whether or not to put money into a pension doesn't really have a feeling of what it's like to be 65 uh, without a pension or whatever. The further these distances are apart, these time, the time when you make the decision and the consequences of making that decision, the more mistakes and errors of judgment that people seem to make. And that, I think, is my 
principal argument for saying the state can intervene. The state can intervene. It can raise people's well-being, their lifetime well-being, through a shrewdly designed intervention in those kind of decisions. Now, next question is, well, how should it do it? Well, the danger with state intervention at any point is that it intervenes and it interferes with people's autonomy. Um, it intervenes with their, their sense uh, of control over their own lives and indeed um, their ability to control their own lives. And there's a danger too that, it, that this intervention in autonomy actually infantilizes people. It actually reduces their own motivation to do things because they know the state is in some sense taking care of them. So is there some way in which we can maximise the impact upon well-being while minimising the impact upon people's autonomy? Banning things, banning smoking in public places, for instance, is one way. Um, in fact, a rather successful way, I think it has to be said, uh, now that it has actually been put in place. Um, most people seem to feel that although it does clearly infringe people's autonomy, impact on people's autonomy, people don't seem to mind very much. And particularly, interestingly, smokers themselves don't seem to mind very much. And I think there's a bit of a lesson there that if you introduce these kind of policies when it's going with the grain of what people want to do anyway, most smokers want to give up. 70-80% of smokers will, will answer a survey saying they would like to give up. When things are going on the grain of where people want to go anyway, they're much easier to introduce. But another interesting set of, of measures comes out of uh, so-called nudge policies. Um, these are policies, uh, they were devised by uh, or the, the phrase nudge and the phrase, the broader phrase, libertarian paternalism, was devised by um, uh, an economist an American economist, Richard Thaler, and uh, an American lawyer, Cass Sunstein. And the idea here is that you don't actually ban people from doing things, but you change the context in which they make the decisions. A classic example would be pensions. Um, suppose you have a system where you have to opt in to a pension scheme. Um, at the age of 20 or 25. When you do have such schemes, say about 80% of people actually stay out, 20 only 20% opt in. Now, suppose you change the default so that uh, people are automatically enrolled in a pension scheme and then have to opt out. Again, the evidence tends to suggest it's about 80-20, but it's 80-20 the other way, with 80% of people staying in and 20% uh, opting out. Uh, so just simply changing the basis for the decision, instead of having an opt-out pension scheme to an opt, uh, sorry, an opt-in pension scheme to uh, changing it to an opt-out pension scheme, you get this massive change in behaviour with very large numbers of people taking out the right amount of money for a pension uh, as opposed to not having a pension at all. Uh, and that's a very, I think, very interesting measure because the choices are exactly the same. So at least in one sense, people's autonomy hasn't been infringed, hasn't been imposed because they, they can make the same choices uh, and there's no, there's no uh, impact uh, on autonomy of that. Um, but at the same time, you get a significant change in behaviour and corrects people's misjudgments about their well-being. And so my task, or what I see as task, is to 
think about these measures to try and devise other measures that might work um, and that, that have this same characteristic of preserving people's autonomy while raising their well-being.